Before we begin, I want to direct you to a great new podcast, One Strange Thing, hosted by the fabulous Laura Norton, who is also one half of the podcast, The Fall Line. Here's Laura to tell you more. We all enjoy a little mystery. And on the new podcast, One Strange Thing, that's just what you'll get. Every other week, One Strange Thing presents forgotten stories from America's news archives. They all have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. I'm Laura Norton. Join me on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about bizarre events that unfolded in our country's local newspapers, but never made it much further than that. No matter the place or the people, One Strange Thing brings you stories that are very real and just a little otherworldly. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. I began looking for cases where murders were solved without a body after I released episode 173, Till Death Do Us Part, the story of newlywed Nancy Andrade, who went missing on her honeymoon in 1982. That case happened right here in my hometown of San Jose, California. When a person goes missing and there's some evidence that foul play might be involved, meticulous detective work is required to identify a suspect and solve the crime. Enough evidence to, one, prove a murder has occurred, and two, identify the responsible party, can be difficult to establish. However, the ability to connect perpetrators to crimes through the use of DNA evidence can sometimes crack even the most baffling of cases. This week's case also happened in my local area. I remember very well when the face of a pretty 15-year-old girl began to appear around town in the worst way imaginable. The smiling teen's photo was prominently displayed on missing persons flyers and affixed to shop windows, telephone poles, and coffee shop bulletin boards. They were displayed in every city and town for miles around after she went missing without a trace in March of 2012 from Morgan Hill, California. This is Chapter 2 of Body of Evidence, The Disappearance of Sierra Lamar. The sun was barely up on Friday, March 16, 2012, when 15-year-old Sierra Lamar began preparing for her day. Her mother, Marlene, stopped by her daughter's room before leaving for her job as a physical therapist. She said goodbye to Sierra, saying, I love you, before locking the front door behind her. By 7 a.m., Sierra was already dressed in jeans and one of her favorite tops, a black sweatshirt that sported the San Jose Sharks hockey team logo. She finished applying her makeup and then posted a selfie on social media. Sierra, like many teens, shared just about every aspect of her life with friends, family, and classmates through her social media accounts, mainly Facebook and Twitter. 
Sierra's cell phone was also ever-present. She never even walked to another room without first grabbing her phone. Now she used it to send a text to one of her friends. They were planning to meet up on the campus of Morgan Hills and Sobrato High School, where they were both students. The plan was to connect with each other before the bell rang for their first period class so they could compare homework notes from the previous day's assignment. They also decided to swap some makeup items that they shared. The text went out to Sierra's classmate at 7.11 a.m. She normally left her house by 7.15 to walk around the corner where she'd be picked up by the school bus at 7.25. Sierra's home was located on a cul-de-sac. The bus stop was located on a rural road no more than 500 yards from her front door. But Sierra never made it to the bus. Somewhere between her front door and the bus stop, less than a five-minute walk, Sierra Lamar disappeared. Marlene Lamar called her daughter every afternoon from work to check in with her. Normally, Sierra would already be home or on her way when Marlene reached her. But on this Friday, Sierra didn't answer the phone. This was somewhat surprising to Marlene, but she quickly rationalized that Sierra probably was napping and didn't hear the phone ring. But when Marlene finally arrived home, Sierra was not there. Marlene tried calling her cell phone repeatedly, but got no answer. Growing more concerned, she called Sierra's dad, from whom she'd been divorced for nearly a year. Stephen Lamar, who lived in another town, said Sierra wasn't with him, and he hadn't heard from her. At first, Marlene began to get angry, thinking that Sierra must be with friends and just didn't bother to let her know. At least, this is what she willed herself to believe as she began calling Sierra's friends. One by one, they said they hadn't seen Sierra. Now growing frantic, Marlene called the school. Sierra had been marked absent in all of her classes that day. Panicked now and knowing something was very wrong, Marlene called the Morgan Hill Police Department to report her daughter missing. Sierra May Lamar was born October 19, 1996. She was one of two daughters born to Steve and Marlene Lamar. Danielle, Sierra's sister, was six years older. Sierra called her Sissy. The family lived in Fremont, California. Fremont, also located in the San Francisco Bay Area, was situated about an hour's drive north from Morgan Hill. The Lamars raised their daughters in Fremont, and Sierra attended Washington High School until early in her sophomore year. Sierra's parents divorced, and her mother remarried in 2011. Wanting to make a fresh start, Marlene and her new husband decided to move to Morgan Hill. Sierra was not thrilled to leave the home and friends she'd known all her life, but quickly acclimated to her new school, made new friends, and even became a cheerleader for Sobrato High's football team. Sierra visited Fremont often to see her father, and in the five short months since moving away, she'd already surprised her friends by making two visits to Washington High School. Sierra was always in motion and could be heard talking, laughing, or singing anytime she was awake. Her favorite thing to do was create videos of herself or with her friends, singing or lip-syncing to her favorite rap and pop songs. Like many teen girls, Sierra loved to try out new looks. She enjoyed carefully applying makeup every day, sometimes going for a more casual, fresh-faced look, and other times attempting something a bit more dramatic. She styled her long, dark hair according to her mood, sometimes curling it in long waves, 
and other times ironing it straight. At the time of her disappearance, Sierra's naturally dark brown hair was dyed black. Sierra was known by her friends as funny, bubbly, and popular. She made friends easily, which her sister Danielle said was partially because of her, quote, goofy personality. Sierra never took herself too seriously and enjoyed acting silly to make others laugh. She was naturally self-confident, was never self-conscious, and always had a ready smile for everyone. When Sierra's mother reported her missing, detectives first asked if it was possible her daughter had run away. Was she upset? Depressed? Definitely not, Marlene Lamar replied. If Sierra was ever upset about anything, and that was rare, she would definitely let you know. She and her mom were close, as was Sierra and her big sister, Danielle. Sierra would never have left on her own without letting, if not her mom, then her sister or her friends know what she was planning to do. And after early Friday morning, not one person had heard from Sierra. The following morning, Saturday, March 17th, the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department would begin an extensive ground and air search for the petite, dark-haired 15-year-old. Tracking dogs would trace Sierra's scent from her house to just about the halfway point to the school bus stop where the scent was then lost. Detectives speculated this could indicate Sierra had gotten into a car. Whether she did so voluntarily or against her will was, of course, unknown. Investigators discovered that Sierra had not boarded the school bus. The driver had seen no sign of her at the usual pickup spot. Sierra was the only student who used that particular bus stop. Morgan Hill, California, located at the southernmost tip of Silicon Valley, serves as a bedroom community for larger cities to its north, like San Jose and Santa Clara. Morgan Hill is a diverse and eclectic community made up of rural farmhouses, trailer parks, middle-class housing developments, and multi-million dollar mansions, all located within 13 square miles. The population of Morgan Hill hovers around 40,000, with a diverse ethnic makeup, with 65% of its residents white, 34% Latinx, 10% Asian, and 15% Pacific Islander. Sierra's home was located on the edge of a residential neighborhood, but merely a block away from a more rural landscape of open fields and lightly traveled one-lane roads. It was one such road that Sierra took a less-than-five-minute walk each morning to reach her bus stop. If someone had intercepted Sierra on her way to the bus, detectives realized, they would have had a very short window of time to do so. The search continued for Sierra until night fell. Her mother, father, stepfather, and sister sat up waiting for the phone to ring from a call from Sierra with some kind of explanation or to simply walk through the door full of apologies. Neither one of these scenarios materialized. At about 3.45 a.m., investigators who'd been tracking Sierra's missing cell phone got their first break. Her phone pinged at a cell tower located just a mile from her home. Until that time, there had been no activity and appeared that the phone had been turned off. Searchers were redirected to the area, and in a large empty field, they discovered the cell phone. It had rained that night, and as the phone became damp, the water caused the phone to react as if it were starting to charge. As a result, the cell phone began turning on for a few seconds before shutting off again. This occurred enough times to cause its signal to ping the cell tower. No tire tracks or footprints were found in the damp earth surrounding the phone, 
causing detectives to believe that it may have been thrown into the field from the road, perhaps out of a moving car. Flyers with Sierra Lamar's photo and description were created and distributed throughout cities in Santa Clara County and beyond. Sierra was described as 15 years old, just over 5 feet tall, weighing between 100 and 110 pounds. She was believed to be wearing jeans, a black sweatshirt with the San Jose Sharks hockey team logo on the front, gray shoes, and carrying a pink and black Juicy Brand bag. Searchers continued combing the roads, fields, barns, and outbuildings in and around Morgan Hill. Morgan Hill is also home to a number of small farms, so investigators literally had a lot of ground to cover. On Sunday, March 18th, searchers made an important discovery. Sierra's pink and black bag was found less than two miles from her home in a rural area where an old shed stood. Behind the shed was a thicket of cactus. The bag had been tossed in the middle of these prickly plants. Trained officers carefully collected the bag to preserve any forensic evidence, and it was transferred to the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Crime Lab for analysis. Inside the bag, all the clothes Sierra was believed to be wearing that day, her jeans, sweatshirt, underwear, bra, and shoes, were found carefully folded and placed inside. Also found were her school books, house keys, asthma inhaler, makeup, and the money her mother had given her for lunch. In essence, everything Sierra had with her the day she went missing was found. The only thing still missing was Sierra herself. There are several bodies of water located near Morgan Hill, including several reservoirs and at least three lakes. Boat teams began searching these waterways. Divers would conduct deep sonar searches of local reservoirs. Still, no trace of Sierra was found. Crime lab technicians now did a careful and thorough analysis of Sierra's clothing and belongings. This would reveal the biggest break in the case so far. DNA swabs taken from Sierra's jeans and bag would uncover DNA from an unknown person. The sample was entered into CODIS, or the Combined DNA Index System, the FBI database that stores DNA profiles created by federal, state, and local crime labs in the United States. It would take a few days to run the DNA profile through this extensive database. The Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department, who was heading the investigation, was now working under the assumption that Sierra Lamar had been abducted. Volunteers continued to conduct daily searches, not willing to give up hope that Sierra may be found alive. The Class Kids Foundation sent trained search volunteers to organize these efforts. Just under three weeks after Sierra disappeared, the unknown DNA profile entered into CODIS came back with a, quote, strong association to someone found in the system. 21-year-old Antolin Garcia Torres was a resident of Morgan Hill's neighboring town of San Martin. His place of residence was discovered to be just seven miles from where Sierra Lamar had gone missing. Antolin Garcia Torres was a 21-year-old man living in an RV park in rural San Martin. He was employed as a stalker and bagger for Safeway. He'd worked at two of the grocery store's locations, both in Morgan Hill. In addition, he'd also worked as a part-time arborist. Garcia Torres' DNA profile was found to be a match to the sample taken from Sierra Lamar's clothing. His DNA had been entered into the system two years earlier, 
when he'd been arrested for an assault that occurred in July of 2010. But Garcia Torres' criminal record began when he was just 18. In May of 2009, Morgan Hill police officers arrived at a farmhouse located at 14245 Yagas Avenue in San Martin. He was living there with several roommates, one of whom was being served an arrest warrant. When officers arrived, Garcia Torres began yelling at them, calling them pigs, and demanding that they, quote, get the fuck out of my house, unquote. He then used his 6-foot-1-inch, 200-pound body to obstruct officers' entry. When he began moving towards the officers aggressively, they handcuffed him and took him to jail. While awaiting transfer to the main jail, Garcia Torres took an entire roll of toilet paper and used it to clog the cell's toilet, causing it to overflow. He also carved the words, quote, I seen it, unquote, in large letters on a bench. He told his jailers that he'd committed both acts of vandalism because he was, quote, bored. Immediately after the vandalism was discovered, Garcia Torres told officers he was sorry and requested he be allowed to write an apology letter. He was charged with two misdemeanors, obstruction of a police officer and vandalism. His court date was scheduled for three months later. On the day of his hearing, the 18-year-old high school dropout insisted on representing himself in court waiving his right to an attorney. He was found guilty and sentenced to serve five days in jail. But the offense for which his DNA was collected took place a year after his first run-in with the law. In June of 2010, Garcia Torres became confrontational with tenants who were renting a home from his mother. They had been unable to pay the rent and had been served notice to vacate the residence. One of the renters was Garcia Torres' own sister. Although they had been given extra time to find a place before being evicted, Garcia Torres showed up one morning and began yelling at his sister and her male friend, telling them they had to be out of the house within the next two hours. In a rage, he removed an air conditioning unit and threw it out of a window. He then got into a physical altercation with his sister's friend, punching him repeatedly in the head and face. The victim had to be taken to the hospital and required several stitches. When police arrived, Garcia Torres justified his actions by saying he had a baby on the way and, quote, didn't want any tweakers around, end quote. I'm not sure if that's a term used outside of California, but it's a derogatory term normally used to refer to methamphetamine users. He was arrested and held on $25,000 bail. He again was sentenced to five days in jail. He was also ordered to complete a 16-week parenting and anger management course. Garcia Torres' DNA sample was collected because, initially, he had also been charged with unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor. His pregnant girlfriend was 16 years old, and Garcia Torres was nearly 20. That charge, however, was dropped, but his DNA profile had already been logged into CODIS. It would become key evidence in the disappearance of Sierra Lamar. Antolin Garcia Torres was contacted and brought into the sheriff's office for questioning. Detectives explained that they were investigating the disappearance of the 15-year-old girl from Morgan Hill. He was asked if he knew her, and Garcia Torres said he did not. He claimed he'd never heard of Lamar until he saw the flyers posted with her picture all over town. He seemed relaxed while being interviewed and answered the detective's questions without hesitation. When asked to describe what he did on Friday, March 16th, Garcia Torres replied that he'd left his home about 7.10 or 7.20 a.m. 
He was now living with his girlfriend and baby in a trailer park in San Martin. He said he'd gone fishing that day and later had stopped by the bank to cash his check before returning home. Detectives also tried to establish if their suspect had any prior relationship with the missing teen. They asked him if anyone might say he'd known or had a relationship with Sierra. Garcia Torres, still behaving in a calm and relaxed manner, gave a small laugh upon being asked this question. He responded, I doubt it. Why? Detectives did not tell Garcia Torres they already had evidence that connected him to the missing girl. Instead, he was asked, Is there any reason we'd find your DNA in connection with her disappearance? At this point, Garcia Torres gave the detective an embarrassed smile and provided a strange and somewhat implausible confession. Well, it's kind of embarrassing, he began. He then told the detective that he often masturbated while in his car. Afterward, he'd throw the tissue out of the car window into the side of the road, he explained. He thought he may have thrown one of these pieces of debris near the field where it was reported Lamar's bag had been found. This obviously seemed suspicious to investigators, not only because of the convenient, although ridiculous, way Garcia Torres was trying to provide an alibi should his DNA be discovered, but for yet another reason. They had made no mention of Lamar being raped or sexually assaulted. How would Garcia Torres know, without being told, that the DNA collected from Sierra's genes had been identified as semen? It was clear that Garcia Torres was not going to confess to abducting Sierra, and investigators still did not have enough evidence to arrest him. They began surveilling his movements, hoping that if Sierra was still alive and being held somewhere, he would lead them to her. His phone was tapped, and a tracking device was placed on his car, a 1998 Volkswagen Jetta. The car was easily recognizable. It was bright red, but the hood of the car had been replaced and was black. In addition, two detectives moved into a vacant trailer located across the street from Garcia Torres in the same trailer park. His movements were watched for several days as he came and went from his residence. Detectives saw no sign of Sierra, nor did their suspect go to any locations where she could have been kept in hiding. At this time, detectives came to the conclusion that Sierra Lamar was most likely dead. Garcia Torres' alibi, what there was of one, was also checked out. A security camera located at the entrance to his trailer park recorded him leaving in the Red Jetta at 7 a.m. on the morning of Friday, March 16th. The camera next recorded him as he returned home, just before 1 p.m. that afternoon. Since his residence was located just seven miles from where Sierra disappeared, he could have easily traveled that distance and arrived between 7.15 and 7.20 a.m., when Sierra was most likely walking alone on the rural road. Investigators also pulled video footage from inside the Bank of America, where Garcia Torres said he had cashed his check that afternoon. He was caught on camera, arriving at the bank just a few minutes before 1 p.m. And they noticed something else on the video. The bottom portion of Garcia Torres's pants, up to an area just past his ankles, appeared to be wet. They couldn't be positive, of course, but if his pants were wet, was this a clue that he had disposed of Sierra's body in water? On April 7th, armed with the DNA evidence found on Sierra's clothing, as well as Garcia Torres's lack of alibi, detectives secured a search warrant for his car. His red Jetta was seized and taken to the crime lab for processing. 
The car and its contents were swabbed for DNA. Samples taken from the inside rear door handle were found to be a match with Sierra Lamar's DNA profile. The same profile was found on a set of gloves belonging to Garcia Torres, taken from inside the car. Another crucial piece of evidence was recovered from the car's trunk. A large rope was found to contain hair samples that the crime lab matched to a sample of Sierra Lamar's hair, as well as her DNA profile. Searchers continued to look for Sierra. The sheriff's department now also called in cadaver dogs. The Lamar family announced a $10,000 reward for information leading to her discovery. Later, it would grow to over $30,000. On May 11th, the television show America's Most Wanted featured Sierra's disappearance to a nationwide audience and asked the public for leads. Yet, Sierra remained missing. Investigators had collected enough evidence to secure an arrest warrant for Garcia Torres. By now, they had given up hope that he would inadvertently lead them to Sierra's body. So on May 21, 2012, Antoline Garcia Torres was arrested and charged with murder with a special circumstance of kidnapping and booked into the Santa Clara County Jail. Authorities had Antoline Garcia Torres in custody, charged with the murder of Sierra Lamar. However, her body had not been found. Volunteers vowed to keep searching until she was found, meeting every Saturday at the newly formed Sierra Lamar Search Center to follow up on tips and comb areas that had not yet been searched. After Garcia Torres became a suspect in Sierra's disappearance, investigators were reminded of a series of attacks on women that had taken place in 2009. Three separate women had been assaulted in the parking lots of the two Safeway grocery stores in Morgan Hill. In each incident, the same M.O. was used. A lone male entered the woman's car through the back door while she sat in the driver's seat. He struck her, trying to knock her unconscious. He then attempted to kidnap the woman in her own car. The first incident took place on March 19, 2009. The victim, Cynthia Lundy, screamed, alerting passersby. Her assailant fled. The same day, another victim was attacked in her car. This time, the attacker attempted to use a stun gun to subdue victim Annette Walters. Others in the parking lot were alerted by the struggle and came to Walters' aid. The attacker fled, dropping the stun gun in his haste to get away. Less than a week later, a third woman was attacked. The victim, Eva Orozco, was able to grab a knife she kept inside her car. The attacker grabbed her hand holding the knife, forcing the woman to push it against her own throat. Once again, others were alerted by her screams and the attacker fled. Detectives now pulled the files of those assaults and attempted kidnappings and realized that Antolin Garcia Torres had been an employee of Safeway and had worked stocking the shelves at both locations during the time the attacks had occurred. They compared the composite drawing made of the suspect and noted that it bore an uncanny resemblance to Garcia Torres. The stun gun had been collected as evidence, but the weapon yielded no fingerprints. However, when they opened it up and removed the D-cell battery, they discovered a partial fingerprint. Not enough of the print was left behind to be matched through a database search. However, they could now compare it to Antolin Garcia Torres's print. It was a match.
The Santa Clara County DA's office decided to combine the charges of first-degree murder of Sierra Lamar and the attempted kidnapping and carjacking charges of the three other victims and have Garcia Torres stand trial on all charges at once. Charges were filed on February 11, 2014, and Garcia Torres pled not guilty two days later. The following May, Santa Clara County District Attorney Jeff Rosen announced that his office would be seeking the death penalty in the Sierra Lamar case. Should Antolin Garcia Torres be convicted and the DA get his wish, it would be the first time anyone was sentenced to death in Santa Clara County in a no-body murder case since 1989. Mark Christopher Crewe was convicted of murdering his new bride, Nancy Andrade Crewe, in 1982. I covered that case in episode 173. The search for Sierra Lamar's body continued with volunteers meeting every Saturday until March of 2015, three years after her disappearance. Leads had slowed to a trickle, but volunteers vowed to follow up each new lead and conduct new searches as warranted, should fresh tips come in. After several delays, Antolin Garcia Torres's trial finally began in late January 2017. The prosecution presented their case to the jury. They described the evidence collected that pointed to the defendant having abducted, raped, and murdered 15-year-old Sierra Lamar, as well as three separate attacks on women in the two years preceding Sierra's murder. They believed that the parking lot attacks were practice runs for the abduction of the teen. Deputy District Attorney David Boyd, explained to the jury how tracking dogs followed Sierra's scent from her house to about the halfway point in her usual walk to the school bus. This is where they believed she had been grabbed by Garcia Torres. Boyd said that Garcia Torres had most likely been stalking the girl for some time and knew her routine and when she'd be alone. The prosecutor didn't believe Sierra had been randomly chosen that day by Garcia Torres, but that he'd planned to abduct her in advance. He had left his house at precisely 7 a.m., and wasn't on his way to a job or any other scheduled stop. It was too much of a coincidence, with a very narrow window of opportunity, to have not been planned by the defendant, Boyd asserted. Did Garcia Torres lie in wait and drag Sierra into his car before she could react? Did he pretend to need directions or in some other way lure the friendly girl close enough to his car to grab her? We will never know. But Boyd presented irrefutable evidence that Sierra somehow had ended up inside Garcia Torres's car, as the DNA evidence proved. Sierra's hair was found entwined in a rope in his trunk. Rosen suggested that Sierra had been bound, placed in the trunk, and moved to another location. He laid out the evidence that Sierra had been sexually assaulted. All of her clothing had been taken off her body, and ejaculate was found on her jeans and bag. This evidence had been matched with a high degree of probability to Garcia Torres's DNA profile. The condition Sierra's recovered clothing had been found in provided evidence she had been dragged on an asphalt roadway. The three other assaults and attempted kidnappings Garcia Torres had been charged with pointed to a pattern of violence that was escalating over time, Boyd said, and this escalation ultimately resulted in Sierra Lamar's murder. The jury also heard the statement the defendant made during his first interview with the detective that he was a, quote, compulsive masturbator, Boyd told the jury that this was the defendant's attempt to create a plausible explanation as to why his DNA might be found in connection with Sierra's disappearance. Finally, 
He pointed out the accused had no alibi from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. the day Sierra went missing. The defense seized upon the fact that Sierra's body had never been found to try and cast doubt that a murder had occurred at all. Where's the evidence that she's deceased, Garcia Torres' attorney Brian Matthews posited to the jury. She's missing and nothing else. The defense claimed that Sierra was unhappy after her parents' divorce and being uprooted from her hometown. Sierra was not a murder victim but a runaway, the defense told the jury. He pointed to an entry written in a notebook found at Sierra's school which read, quote, I hate my life. I will be in San Francisco by 3-16-12, They also called into question the reliability of the DNA evidence, a common strategy employed by the defense when trying to explain away this type of scientific evidence. Finally, as far as the fingerprint found on the battery in the stun gun, Garcia Torres' attorneys claimed that if the fingerprint did belong to their client, there was a simple explanation. He worked as a stock person at Safeway and was often tasked with reshelving returned items. Some of these items, like batteries, might have been opened before they were returned. Stalkers retaped the packages before placing them back on the shelves, which is how their client's fingerprint may have been transferred to the battery, the defense claimed. A bit of a stretch, to say the least. The prosecution rebutted each of the defense's claims in turn. First, as to Sierra still being alive, there was absolutely no evidence of that, the prosecution claimed. There had been no communication from her since 7.11 a.m. the day she went missing. No phone calls, texts, or social media posts. She was a 15-year-old girl who had no independent means of support. She'd even left behind the $5 her mother had given her to purchase a school lunch. Also, if she'd voluntarily run away, had she done so naked, the prosecution asked rhetorically, every item of clothing she owned, including the ones she was wearing that morning, and her missing school bag had been accounted for. To say that the teen could have voluntarily disappeared without a trace was completely ludicrous, the prosecution said. As to Sierra being unhappy and wanting to run away, her family members and friends testified that she had never seriously discussed wanting to leave home with anyone. The notebook entry had been investigated by detectives when it first surfaced. They had been satisfied that the journal entry had been created as an insensitive prank by another high school student after Sierra went missing. Deputies who'd been in charge of collecting and preserving the evidence and DNA samples were called to testify. They described for the jury the meticulous process used to ensure cross-contamination did not occur, including changing into a new pair of latex gloves every time a new piece of evidence was processed. The store manager where Garcia Torres worked was called to the stand. He explained that items returned to the store opened were not reshelved, by consulting his records, the manager told the court that a new policy that did allow opened items to be restocked wasn't put into place until months after the parking lot attacks occurred. After an almost five-month trial, jurors deliberated for less than two days before finding Antolin Garcia Torres guilty of the kidnapping and first-degree murder of Sierra Lamar. He was also found guilty of the attempted kidnapping and assault of the additional three victims. The jury would now decide if Garcia Torres received life in prison or was sentenced to death. The defense called his mother to the stand to provide background information that might cause the jury to feel some sympathy for the defendant and spare his life. The details of Garcia Torres' early life were pretty bleak. 
Antolin's mother, Laura Torres, met his father, Genaro Garcia Fernandez, in Mexico and was married to him when she was just 13. Laura Torres described through translators the history of abuse she and her children had suffered at the hands of her alcoholic, abusive husband. Laura Torres told the jury that her husband beat her so much that when she was pregnant with Antoline, she had left her husband and moved in with her in-laws to keep herself and her children safe from his drunken rages. He had threatened to kill them all, she said. He'd often say to her, quote, You'll go to sleep tonight, but you might not wake up. In 2012, the same year Sierra was abducted and murdered, Antoline's father was convicted of 17 counts of child molestation. He was now serving prison time for sexually molesting a female family member, beginning when she was just seven years old. The abuse continued until she was 14. He would eventually confess to the crime, but Hanaro Garcia would blame the victim, saying it was the girl's fault and that she, quote, wasn't a virgin, end quote. His mother said Antoline was a loving, responsible son who provided support for her and the rest of the family. She said he was also a loving father to his two daughters with longtime girlfriend Frances Sarmiento. His second child was born after his arrest for Sierra's murder. Garcia Torres' defense attorneys also shared that his parents had been migrant farm workers. During the time when the defendant was a baby and a young child, they lived in a small shack in the middle of a strawberry field. The defense brought in experts who explained how exposure to pesticides used on the crops may have affected Garcia Torres' brain development during his formative years, contributing to his anger issues and low impulse control. Sierra's family members, friends, and teachers spoke on her behalf during the sentencing trial. A video showing Sierra as a baby, child, and teen elicited sobs from her mother who was sitting in the courtroom. The defendant sat with his face turned away, never looking at the video screen. When Sierra's mother, Marlene, spoke to the jury about the pain of not knowing where her daughter's body was taken, she turned to the defendant and pointed out his cruelty at not letting them bring her home to lay her to rest. What if it was one of your daughters, she said through tears. Garcia Torres did not react. Steve Lamar, Sierra's father, described how hard it was to see his daughter's friends reach milestones like going to prom and graduating from high school, things that Sierra would never get to experience. They had not held a funeral for Sierra. Neither her mother or father could imagine doing so until they brought her body home. Sierra's teachers and classmates described how the corner classroom desk where Sierra sat had been kept empty for the rest of the school year. Her chair at Sobrato High's 2014 graduation was also left empty in her memory. The jury returned from their deliberations with a recommendation of not death, but life without parole for Garcia Torres. Both Sierra's parents and the deputy district attorney were surprised. Steve Lamar told reporters, quote, I'd be lying if I didn't say I'm disappointed in the verdict. He'll be able to live. Sierra won't. He'll be able to breathe. Sierra doesn't. He'll be able to eat every day, see his family, and we don't have that. The crime, I thought, deserved the maximum sentence. A bench was placed in Sierra's memory at Washington High, her former high school in Fremont. Sierra Lamar's body has still not been found. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. 
don't forget, CrimeCon House Arrest will be streaming live a week from this Saturday on November 21st. Get your tickets today to join us from the comfort and safety of your own home. Participate in workshops and discussions led by Dateline's Keith Morrison and Josh Mankiewicz, investigator and podcaster Paul Holes, and one of the world's foremost forensic scientists, Dr. Henry Lee. You can also have FaceTime with your favorite true crime podcasters, including me. Don't miss it. Go to crimecon.com slash house arrest to register and find out more. We're also giving away a Once Upon a Crime prize pack, as well as two live-only passes to CrimeCon House Arrest. To enter, just follow Once Upon a Crime on Instagram or Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod. Look for our CrimeCon House Arrest post and follow the directions to enter. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.